And as you're seated, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord, again, uh, I'm mindful of your shepherding love for us, of your fatherly care. Uh, Lord, we don't want to take anything for granted. Some of us, you know, have been to church thousands and thousands of times, and it can be our way to go through the motions. And we pray that your spirit would be at work in such a way that, that indeed it would fall afresh on us this morning through the preaching of the word. And I, I thank you, Lord, that, that the power of preaching is not bound up in the preacher, but in the spirit who is at work. So spirit, please be at work in our hearts that we would uh, receive this word, that we'd have ears to hear, that it would go to work on us, that we would be not merely hearers of it, but doers of it. And Lord, I forgot to pray for the offering this morning, and I just want to be mindful of your generosity toward us, that we would respond to it, that you would use everything, uh, that uh, all the resources of this church for your glory, and that you would work into us, because you are such a generous father to us, the grace of generosity toward others. Use this uh, for your glory and uh, the good of our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, again, today is the first Sunday of Christmas, and it's traditionally in the church year kind of the pivot point where we shift from a season of where the focus is on waiting for Jesus to one of welcoming Jesus. And yet, you know, we're beginning that season this morning with a passage uh, with someone who seems to kind of come out of nowhere, at least in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, our, our translation doesn't quite capture it, but Matthew's language is that this person, John, made his appearance, showed up. And, and, and that language gives you the sense that with John's appearance, uh, an expectation is being filled. And in fact, he shows up looking for all the world like he has stepped right out of the pages of the Old Testament. Uh, he, he's got clothes made of camel hair, leather, beta, uh, leather belt around his waist, even, the, even what he eats, um, locusts and honey. Uh, all of that is exactly descriptive of how the prophet Elijah is described in 1 Kings 1. And in fact, an expectation is being fulfilled when John appears because he is the one the prophet said would come. Uh, not, not as the last man, not as the Messiah, but as the next to last man, as, as the one Isaiah said would come as a particular kind of prophet, one who, whose principal work is to prepare, to prepare God's people. So John shows up as, as something like a forerunner to Jesus, as one who's preparing his people for the coming of Jesus. And, and I want to be careful because we would be mistaken to think of John's ministry, you know, as mere prologue uh, until the real plot gets going with Jesus, okay? Uh, you could pick up a novel and start with chapter one and skip the prologue and, and you, you wouldn't lose much of the story. But, but John coming as a preparer for Jesus isn't just introductory to the plot, okay? Uh, John is integral to the, to the plot. And, and apart from his role in the coming of Jesus, in, we lose the plot altogether. He's, he is integral to that plot, and he's integral in this way, that John shows up as the last Old Testament prophet in order to put the law of God in front of God's people once again, in full force, 
so that in feeling the weight of the law, they'd be directed to the whole point of the law, which is that we would cry out for a Savior. So so there's a relationship here, and it's really critical. It's critical to this passage. I would say it's critical to our Christian life, if indeed you are a Christian, this relationship between law and gospel. It is critical to understanding that. It's critical to understanding this relationship between John and Jesus in this passage. And and look, the Bible has a lot to say about the law of God. It's a phrase um, that can mean anything from the entire Old Testament to the first five books of the Old Testament to just the Ten Commandments to one of those Ten Commandments. But, But John's ministry embodies the law in what I would say is the broadest sense, that is to say the the law principle, working to reveal God's holy character and perfect will as the main way we come to know what I want to say are the two most important things you can know in all of life, that you would know the truth about God and the truth about yourself, That, that that would work in such a way upon us, knowing the truth about God, the truth about ourselves, that we would get to the gospel. So if you're ever going to get to the gospel, you've got to go through the law. And in the same way, if you're going to get to Jesus, you've got to go through John. In particular, the law works so that we can't know the good news of God's salvation apart from first knowing really the bad news the bad news of our sin, which the law reveals, shows us. I remember uh, being with an artist friend in Boston once, um, a painter. I went to his gallery, and he was, he was showing me some of his most recent work. And, and, and honestly, to be, to, to be honest, it was, it was challenging. It was, it was challenging to look at. Um, it's not necessary. These weren't the kinds of paintings you would hang over grandma's mantle. And, and I think he could see that I was wrestling with it a bit, and, and, and then he said something really profound to me. He said, you know, John, the ugliness is the point. Uh, if it weren't for the ugliness, we, we, we have no hope of understanding beauty. And that, that makes so much sense, doesn't it? And, and it? and it says something about the relation of law to gospel, um, uh, that, that you don't really have any hope of knowing what the light is until you know something of the darkness. You don't really understand satisfaction until you felt hunger or rest apart from labor or freedom apart from captivity or life apart from death, right? So the law works in in a similar way. It works to the end that we would know the the genuine ugliness and nightmare that is our sin so that we would be prepared to embrace and enjoy the beauty of our Savior. That's the essence of John's ministry, and I want to notice how it is enacted. It's enacted through preaching. Um, We know him as John the Baptist, but but reading this text, you kind of wonder, you know, why he isn't known as John the Preacher? And and it's a good reminder that preaching is a gift, a gift to God's people. It's, It's given to God's people because it is central to the communication of the gospel. Paul Paul says in Romans 10, in fact, that it's virtually impossible to hear the gospel unless someone is preaching. And John's preaching here is a big focus, not least because it is seen as a fulfillment. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah 40, uh, that his is the voice. This is the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John's voice 
is a crying out voice, which is to say it's loud. And, you know, thinking about that, it seems to me that people speak loudly for, for at least one of three reasons. That people are distant, people are deaf, or people are disturbed, angry. And, and John, it seems to me, preaches to a world that, that was and is all three. <laughs> distant, deaf, and disturbed. And so he's preaching to the distant, the deaf, and disturbed to prepare the way of the Lord, to make his path straight by taking the singular but far-reaching action that, that really kind of summarizes the entirety of John's message here. And that word is repent. Now, that's a challenging word for a lot of reasons, not least because the biblical word doesn't have a great English equivalent. Um, one grammarian I came across uh, this week went so far to say that repent is the worst translated word in the whole New Testament. Uh, and he made the case, I mean, again, he's a grammarian, he's getting a little geeky about it, but he's saying, look, you know, our word repent comes from the Latin, which just means to be sorry again, to be a repentant, you know. It assumes that we were sorry in the first place. But the imperative of John's preaching doesn't assume that at all. It doesn't assume we were ever sorry. What, what, it, what it asserts is, in fact, that we were headed the wrong direction, that we were utterly wrong in our way of life, in our direction. Repent means to turn around, to, to change direction from the way you're going because you're headed the wrong way. But, but still, it's a challenging word because of what, a, you know, what I think is a very churchy word, right? Um, rarely am I out in the world and make a mistake and then I you know, miscalculate a tip on a restaurant bill or something and then call the waiter and say, I have to repent to you, you know. Yeah, I usually say, I'm sorry. But, but it, you know, so it's one of these churchy words. But I was talking to a friend recently who said, you know, I, I, I often use, uh, not that it's a perfect replacement, but I often use the word repair as a substitute um, because it, it, it at least gets at this idea that there is a brokenness in me caused by me, between us. And the first step to making it right is to admitting the reality of that brokenness, that something needs repairing. And John doesn't merely call, call for repentance. He actually gives reason for repentance. And his reason is specifically that the kingdom of heaven is coming. Um, if we were to get a little colloquial with, with this message, he would say something like, Repent, because here comes the kingdom of heaven. He treats the kingdom of heaven like something like a rising tide, or a gathering storm, or a volcanic eruption. That there is a certain stubborn reality to the coming of the kingdom, which necessitates us getting ready for its coming. Uh, that, that we have to adjust to its reality and not ask that it adjust to us. The kingdom is big, it's coming, it will leave nothing untouched, and it will affect everyone. That's how John talks about it. And it will affect everyone in one of two ways, for good or for ill. So that we receive it either blessedly, by, by turning toward it in repentance and faith, or it will come upon us brutally. 
in our refusal to repent. That's how John talks about the kingdom. And because we've seen all the movies, you know, and any time there, we were talking about this the other day, any time there's a, a preacher in a movie, you know, what is he? he he's, he's the worst person in the movie. <laughs> you know, he is graceless, joyless, angry, hypocritical, and what's he always saying? Repent. You know, that, that, and I, that's a hard picture to get out of your mind because it's so, you know, uh, it's ubiquitous in, in our books and our films and everything. But, but I just, I just want to say, you know, that is definitively not what John is doing here. That's not how John is. His call to repent is urgent, but it is also gracious. It is urgent and gracious in the same way Paul Revere was urgent and gracious by getting on his horse and riding around town telling everyone that the British are coming so that everyone would be made aware of a particular reality so that we would all be not only aware, but by being told about that reality, we would be enabled to get ready and to get right with that reality. And and, and when you understand that, it means that preaching the coming of the kingdom doesn't merely make you aware of its coming. It also makes you able to repent. makes you able to turn your life around. So there's, it's full of grace in that way, even, if it, even as it is very urgent. So, so the content of John's preaching is to repent because here comes the kingdom. And in verses 5 and 6, we actually see the consequences of that preaching. And the consequence is revival. Uh, you know, and, and again, you know, I, I want to kind of maybe deal with some of the baggage we might have in, in our minds. Certainly, I have in mind. I hear revival, and I hear things like churches planning revivals, setting up tents, getting hot preachers and good music, and canvassing the neighborhood, and saying, come to the revival. But, but this is different. This is a revival of the Spirit. Um, every genuine revival, according to, you know, Church historian Richard Lovelace says, he says, every genuine revival is set off when two basic ingredients come together. And those ingredients are that people are taken with the reality of the holiness of God, his justice and his love, which creates in them and among them an awareness of the depth of their sin in themselves and in the world. Those two, those two ingredients, the, the holiness of God and the depth of sin, and, and it seems that those two ingredients have mingled here, and there is an explosion of the Spirit which moves people and creates something of a revival. That's what's happening here. Jerusalem, Judea, the whole region are streaming out to John to be baptized. And, and I, I, again, I want to notice the effect of John's preaching of repentance isn't condemnation. It is something completely different. It is conviction. Deep conviction and a sure sign that revival indeed is happening is seen in how they come. The people come, we're told, confessing their sins. Openly admitting their sins would be another way to put it. No no one's arms are being twisted. No one's being manipulated. No one is posturing or playing games. They are streaming to John, not only wanting to repent, but there's a sense in which they need to. They are turning. They are preparing the way of the Lord. They're making the way, the path straight. Everything's being exposed. There's a certain freedom to it. They're not coming to John. Here's how you know it's not condemnation. 
They're not coming to John with resolutions to do better. They're not coming to John with pledges to amend a wayward life. They're not coming to John with explanations or excuses or any other thing you might do if you're feeling nothing but condemnation. Because condemnation means it's your work to do. No, the, the work is being done by the Spirit. Genuine conviction has moved them to repentance, which gets them to a better deliverance than they could, they could ever provide for themselves. This is how God's law was made to work. It wasn't given just to wreck you on the one hand or to get you making better resolutions on the other, okay? And you can be sure that if you hear it, and feel there's no place to go with it except to despair on the one hand or to digging deeper by my own efforts on the other, then the law is being misused. It's not being used right, and it's not gospel preaching. It's not connecting to the gospel. So John's preaching doesn't cut them off from grace or give them a list of things to accomplish on their own. Instead, it gives them a way to go. It, it directs them toward baptism. Repentance, faith, and baptism. Now, baptism, again, is another one of these churchy words, and it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to, when you hear that word baptism, you just think of a bath. It's a bath. You know, uh, to come to baptism at this very basic level is to say, I'm filthy, and I know I need cleaning up. I need a good wash. It's not a ritual for the righteous. It is a bath for the filthy. But, but also, it's more than a bath. It not only represents cleansing of sin, it also represents the killing of it. Baptism is a bath and a drowning rolled all into one. Baptism brings with it the admission that, you know, I and my people need to be cleansed because I and my people are filthy. And I and my people need for sin to be killed because it is killing us. Because God's law showed me that I cannot begin to clean myself or kill my own sins. So I'm coming with repentance and I'm calling upon the Lord to wash me and to kill the sin. So I don't know if you're beginning to see a little bit of a paradox in all of this. The paradox is that the way to actual holiness begins with the deepest sense of our own sin. The, the way into intimate fellowship with God begins with seeing how furiously we fought God. The, the way into living for God begins with dying to ourselves in repentance and baptism. The way to begin to repent and to prepare the way of the Lord and get in line with the kingdom of God begins with admitting how completely terrible we are at doing any of that on our own. <laughs> Now, in verse 7, another group decided to come out to John. But, but they're not coming to be baptized. They're coming towards John's baptism, but not for John's baptism. Uh, they are there to observe. They're not there to participate. And we're told that they're the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are the two leading religious sects in uh, Israel. Um, one writer I came across refers to them as the serious and the sophisticated. Um, you know, taken together, they represent something like the full spectrum of religious leadership in those days, and, and I would say they're pretty emblematic of the full spectrum of religious leadership in our day. The, the Pharisees, the serious, 
you know, represent something like the more conservative, evangelical end of the religious spectrum. These folks were mostly lay leaders. They were quick. They were concerned about personal morality and quick to enforce it. Uh, they, They were concerned about personal responsibility and quick to enforce it. They were concerned with the cohesion of their religious group. They were concerned with cultural decline. The Sadducees, on the other hand, the sophisticated, were mostly professional clergy. They they tended to be urbane, elite, cultured, went to the best schools, walked the corridors of power. Uh, And their principal concern was more with cultural connection than cultural confrontation. They were more interested in maintaining influence than they were about, you know, whether you were personally moral or societally moral. And again, these are very broad brushstrokes, but you're getting the idea. These were two groups that were about as differentiated as they could be along the religious spectrum, and yet when they show up, John doesn't distinguish between any of them. He just says, here comes a pack of snakes. And you've got to wonder, you know, given who these people are, you've got to wonder what in the world can the theological liberals and the theological conservatives possibly have in common? Well, it turns out that for all the outward distinctiveness, underneath the seriousness, underneath the sophistication, uh, they were exactly the same in that both groups felt that they had attained a righteousness of their own, that they'd kept the law. Unlike the people who came out to repent and be baptized because they'd been undone by God's law to the point of repentance, Pharisees and the Sadducees are convinced they've upheld it. So they're only moved to not repent, but sort of review the goings-on. And, and John preaches a little sermon aimed at these folks who imagine that they're great law keepers, who imagine they don't need a baptism or repentance. And he, he begins by asking them, who warned you to escape the coming wrath of God? Now, now, earlier, Matthew summarized John's preaching as being all about the coming of the kingdom, and now says, and now John's saying something like that with the coming of the kingdom of God also comes the wrath of God, right along with it. And here we go again with another tricky phrase. The wrath of God is one of those concepts. Luther called this the strong wine of the gospel. This is not the Martinelli's cider of the gospel. This is you know, 100 proof, something that you feel is quite a bracing concept. It's a bracing concept, but it's a biblical one. And it's one that's greatly misunderstood, and it's vital to know what the wrath of God is and what it isn't. For, for, for starters, the wrath of God is not the irrationality of God. It's not God just, you know, in his capricious, untamed wildness lashing out. Neither is it the irritability of God. It's not just God's grumpiness. On the contrary, it is the intense love of God, which will not and cannot allow injustice and evil to persist. You know, there's, no one likes the idea of wrath until they need wrath, right? Um, there's nothing more agonizing to my soul and probably yours than just seeing rank unresolved and persistent injustice 
When you see that, you just long for things to be made right, don't you? You want to see the exploited and the ripped off and the hurt and the grieving get justice so that somehow they would be restored and made whole, that the perpetrators of those evils would be put right, so that everything would be made right. Right? To long for that is not irrationality, and it's not irritability. It's to desire the good. It's a form of love. And, you know, and we know, because we're so deeply imperfect, that we pursue these things deeply and Im- deeply imperfectly. We're, we're always trying to you know, kind of manage the situation, to contain the evil, to control it, to do damage control. We're always overdoing it on the one hand and underdoing it on the other and never quite getting at the place of perfect justice. But, but unlike us, the eternal God of the universe is perfectly holy, perfectly loving, perfectly just, and perfectly powerful. So that his wrath against evil isn't a contradiction of his love, it is in fact proof of it. So yes, God indeed is love, but please, we need to be careful not to reduce God's attributes down to one. And then to take the further step of defining exactly how that attribute ought to work and make us all feel. I mean, we confessed earlier, we do it every week, something true of the Lord that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And we confess that every week, not only because it's true, but but also so that we wouldn't lose half the biblical freight of God's perfect justice and holiness. Because to lose sight of the holy character of God is to lose the gospel itself. It is to render it into this bland, blanched, lifeless thing and his people right along with it so that we become dim and saltless and numb. And God help us if we ever become that cynical. So John zeroes in on God's justice and goes to the very heart of injustice in the world, what you might call the source of it. Not by preaching against some amorphous societal evil, but he actually zeroes in on the hearts of the people to whom he is preaching, who imagine that they are just. He locks in on what these religious leaders believe makes them just. And what, what they imagine justifies them before God and before others so that they're kept from repentance themselves, but are very quick to ratchet, ratchet up the demands of the law on others. And they do all that because they say, we have Abraham as our father. You know, we're living in a situation right now where there's something damaging and potentially deadly at work in the world and where we are currently scrambling to figure out a way to protect people by, you know, prioritizing who gets the vaccine first with the hope that everyone will eventually get it. And there's a lot to say about that. I'm happy to talk about it. Save your emails. (laughs) But, you know, but John isn't preaching as though some ought to be prioritized over others, right? As if some are, you know, more susceptible to the dangers than others. Um, He's preaching as one who says, all of us, from the most rebellious to the most religious, are afflicted. Sin is alive and at work in us, so everyone has to come to repentance and faith. And yet, wildly, irony of ironies, this sends a chill down my spine every time I contemplate it. The very people whose entire calling is to exposit that very truth see themselves as exempt from it. 
because they imagine themselves to be justified and righteous on the basis of something like tradition and tribe. In fact, they've probably shown up here because John is baptizing others from their tribe and their tradition. You know, it's not that they thought baptism was a bad thing for the Gentiles. I mean, if you happen to be a dirty, filthy outsider who wanted to join up with Israel, we're more than happy to give you a good spiritual scrub down. But for insider Israelites, secure in Abraham, secure in their tribe and their tradition, what are you doing? So when they heard John was baptizing Israelites, that was subversive stuff that struck at the heart of what they cherished as their spiritual security. And it's not just that the Gentiles, you, you, you know, need to be cleansed and have their sins drowned and be ready for the coming of the kingdom, but all of us do? You're saying we stink too? That sin is killing us too? That we need a Savior as much as they do? And, and you get the idea that John's heard it all before and that he doesn't want to hear it again. So he cuts them off and he just says, don't come out here telling me you've got Abraham as your father because God can make sons of Abraham out of these stones. And in verse 10, he gives them an illustration where he says, essentially, you know, people are like trees. Uh, the ones who bear good fruit continue to grow and bear more good fruit, but those who don't bear good fruit are thrown into the fire. And, and again, the urgency. I mean, he's saying the, the ax to cut those trees down doesn't even need to be fetched from the tool shed because it is laying at the base of the tree, ready to, for the Lord to pick it up and put it to work. Unless we think John is being harsh, it's worth pointing out that Jesus uses the exact same illustration in chapter 7 of this gospel. And yet, bracing as John's preaching is, He's never not preaching the gospel. And here's how we know John isn't being harsh and legalistic. He doesn't give the law the last word. And John knows that he doesn't have the last word. John is the last and greatest prophet, and like every prophet that came before him, he doesn't preach the judgment of God as the point. He preaches it actually as a pointer one which would direct us to the promises of God and the person of Jesus. So he doesn't conclude with, I baptize you with water for repentance, but continues pointing to the one who is coming after me, who is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He'll baptize you with a baptism of Holy Spirit and fire. You see, all legalism does is preach law as the way to life and as the law as the way of life, and in some way or other, whether you're a legalistic member of the serious tribe or a libertine member of the sophisticated tribe, legalism is always throwing you back upon yourself and your work and your attitude and your efforts and your record and your results. But instead of preaching that the good news is about what we must do for God, John points away from the law and says that the good news is about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So even as he brings a good and necessary baptism, he says, actually, there's a better baptism coming. I want to point you to that. A baptism not done just with water, but with the Holy Spirit. John's preaching of repentance works to 
awaken a desire to be right with God, but he wants us to know that Jesus' baptism of the Spirit actually works to apply that righteousness to our hearts by giving us the Holy Spirit. You know, for, for all of John's fire, he's, he's deeply modest about what he's actually able to do. You know, it's, it's almost as if he's saying, look, I can tell you right from wrong. I can tell you that to turn around. I can tell you what direction to run in. I can tell you, you know, to repent and to get baptized. But let's be really clear, only Jesus can change you. When it, when it comes right down to it, John wants us to know, I'm not even worthy to carry his flip-flops. God's law is good, and he gave it to do quite a lot in giving us useful information about what to do, what not to do, telling us to change, how to live a good life, what we ought to love, what we ought to hate. But it is not life, and it cannot give you life. It can only work to propel you there. The law brings all the right information, but it's only in the gospel, only in Jesus' spirit baptism that you actually get transformation. So, so notice how intensely John turns the focus on Jesus, and this comes through and how he speaks about his baptism. He, he says uniquely in Matthew, not only that he baptizes with the Holy Spirit, but he says also with fire. While the, while the other, you know, you have to wonder why the other gospels don't have this addition of fire. Matthew puts it there. Why? Well, John explains what he means in verse 12 when he says that Jesus is coming with his winnowing fork in his hand that he's separating the wheat from the chaff, that he gathers wheat into the barn and burns the chaff with unquenchable fire. There's a lot to say about that, but let me just kind of bring it home a little bit. This time of year, uh, usually, not, maybe not this year, but usually, like a lot of you, uh, we'll get a number of Evites to holiday parties. You know, and I love Evite. I've used it, you know, but the great innovation of Evite beyond anything else is not the fact that you can do all this stuff online. It is the creation of one little button, the maybe button. You know, no longer, because of Evite, do you have to say, yes, I'm coming, or no, I'm sending my regrets. You can keep all the options open. You can burden your host with having no idea how many mini quiches they've got to put out for the party because they don't know if you're coming or not. Because you can just say maybe. John is saying with the coming of Jesus, with the coming of the king and his kingdom, there is not a maybe button. It is coming and the king is coming with them. That Jesus' baptism is a baptism of the spirit and fire because there can be no maybe with him. There can be no middle ground with him. He is not a king, he is the king. Because here comes the king, and with him the kingdom. And because that is true of him, he is not merely personal savior, he is also sifter. And John preaches that with the urgency and intensity, not merely that we would be frightened to death, but so that we would flee to life. Running to Jesus with repentance and faith, living lives of repentance and faith. This is the message of grace that tells us the truth of our situation that we might be saved. And look, I, I don't know what you might be looking to for life this morning, what you're clinging to, what you run to, what's on your resume. But maybe it's helpful to look out that window or as we leave church today and we see a rock. 
it would be good to be reminded that God is able to raise up from that rock, not just sons of Abraham, but evangelicals, business successes, good parents, patriotic Americans, native Santa Fans, native Texans, woke millennials, and, and even Presbyterians. In Lamentations 3, Jeremiah says something really profound. He says, it is because of God's love we are not consumed. It's the kindness of God, His holy love, that leads us to repentance for our sins and and not retribution for them. It's the kindness of God, His holy love, that leads us to a baptism into Christ, not a banishment from Him. And when we turn around in repentance and put our faith in King Jesus because of his great love, we, are, we aren't consumed for our sins because he was for us. Because of his great love, the Lord gave us Jesus, Savior and King, who underwent the ultimate baptism of spirit and fire on the cross, being consumed for our sins. So that we, instead of being consumed of our sins for our sins, are cleansed of them because of Jesus. So that we, instead of being killed by our sin, has it killed for us by Jesus. All because our King and Savior allowed the holy and consuming fire of God's justice to fall upon His sinless self for sinners. So that we would be saved and justified and not sifted into judgment. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the bracing work of the law upon us. I thank you for faithfully telling us the truth about yourself, about our world, about us. Lord, I thank you for this grace of repentance um, that, again, your word tells us is your kindness. I thank you for just regularly reminding us, you know, that we're not as strong as we think, uh, that we are more frail than we'd like to imagine, uh, that we never arrive at this place where we aren't needful of your grace, that we're we're never at this place where we can say, you know, I just don't need a Savior quite as much as I once did. We do. And Lord, uh, this table is such a good reminder, this table that you bring us to week in and week out at which we are fed. Fed, you know, reminded in a visceral way uh, that just as we need to eat to live, um, how much more do we need our Savior who gave himself up for our life that we might have life? Uh, Lord, awaken in us, again, the reality of hunger that we would be well fed at this table by faith, uh, that it would be for us a, a true means of grace, uh, that grace would be worked into us by coming here, that we would come with faith, you know, maybe not strong faith. We're not, you know, again, we're not looking to ourselves. We don't want to be thrown back onto our, our, our own piety or efforts or anything. We want to be thrown upon you. So, Jesus, thank you that you promise that even as you are sitting at the right hand of the Father, reigning in glory now, you are with us in this meal spiritually. Lord, be at work as we come. Thank you for giving us such a gift in Jesus. Lord, may we um, fellowship in him and with him together.
as we come. In Jesus' name, amen.